I'd like for us to open our Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1, please. The book of Romans, chapter 1. And as we open this first chapter of the book of Romans, instead of preaching on a particular text from the chapter, we're going to give you an exposition and just deal with each word and each verse as the Lord leads us to bring out the best that we can for you as we study and expound the Scripture. You know, a lot of times I think we just get away from just expounding the Scripture in a simple, down-to-earth way so that everyone can understand it. And I hope that we'll be able to make it understandable and glean from every verse just as much as is possible. So I want us to look at Romans chapter 1, verse 1. In the first verse, we'll find out the authorship. We know it to be the Apostle Paul. You know, instead of signing his name at the end of the book, like we do a letter, and this it was the epistle or letter of Paul to the Romans, he signs his name at the beginning. So we all always know who's writing. And he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. You know we could take this one verse and preach probably the whole message on it. We'll not try to do that, but we will try to give you the most important things that we find. First of all, notice the word Paul. You know what Paul means? It means little. And though his name meant little, he was certainly not little as far as the apostles were concerned. For he was a giant among the apostles, wasn't he? And notice he says, a servant of Jesus Christ. And the word servant is very strong in some places. He says, a, a bond slave. Actually, it's a slave. And he says, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Now then, we know that the Bible teaches that if Christ shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Certainly, Paul was a free man. You and I are free as Christians, but we willingly become servants of God. And we become even not only just servants, but slaves. But we do it of our own free will. So he says, Paul, a bond servant, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And he says, called to be an apostle. His calling was for an apostleship. That means one that is sent on a commission. The sent one. He was an ambassador to preach the gospel. And so he was one that was called for this purpose and sent out for this purpose. Divinely called. He wasn't called of man. You know, there's some man called. We used to say years ago when some father or mother wanted their son to be a preacher that he was mama called and papa sent, or vice versa, depending on which one wanted him to be the preacher. But anyway, uh, this kind of calling is not from God. A calling to the ministry comes from God. It may come in various ways for various people, just as the experience of salvation comes to, to people in a different way. How you were called to be saved may have come about in a far different way than the next fellow. What finally brought you to trust in Jesus for your salvation and to turn to believe on him, to thrust yourself upon him, to trust in him, and to roll yourself upon him completely for your salvation may have happened to you in altogether a different way than it happened to another person. But nevertheless, it happened, and it was God's way of calling you individually. 
May have been when you were young, may have been when you were middle-aged, may have been when you were older. Could have been at any time in life, but it was a divine calling. And thus you were born again, and born anew, and born of the Spirit of God. And God saved you by His grace. You realized you were a sinner and that you couldn't save yourself, and that Jesus died for your sins. That's all you had to know. And that if you trust Him, that He would save your soul. And whether you walked down the an aisle or knelt before your pew and prayed or knelt at, a, at an altar or uh, was saved at home in your bedroom or in the living room. However it was, if you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were born again. But the calling to the ministry comes too. And it comes in a special way for each and every individual. Paul was called to be an apostle. And he says, separated under the gospel of God. The word separated means to, that he was set apart for this purpose of ministry. Paul was just set aside for this. This was his uh, calling. This was his work. And he was separated, not only separated from the world, but set apart under the gospel of God. Now notice here, we not only have the authorship, that is the apostle Paul, but we have the theme of the book stated. The gospel of God is the theme. It's not only the theme of the chapter, but it's the theme of the book of Romans. If you'll notice in verse 1, it's the gospel of God. That means God is the author of this gospel. If you'll notice in verse 9, it says, the gospel of His Son. That means that Christ is the central theme of the gospel. It's God's gospel, but it's concerning Christ. It's that Jesus is the central theme of it. And if you'll notice verse 15, it says, Paul says, I'm ready to preach the gospel. This gospel uh, was preached and is to be preached. And this is the only theme and the only message of our preaching. We're to preach the gospel. And then if you'll notice verse 16, it's the gospel of Christ. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And this means, Christ means the anointed one. And so this would give us the meaning that he that the gospel that's preached of that anointed one is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. So you have the theme stated here in the first chapter and given in the first chapter. But if you notice verse 1 again, it says, He separated unto the gospel of God. Now let's follow it right on down and get as much of the simple meaning of this passage of Scripture as we're able to get. If you'll notice verse 2, it says, "...which he promised afore by his holy prophets, by his prophets in the holy scriptures." The gospel had been promised. The gospel concerning, verse 3, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel of God was concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, but it was also by the authority of the scriptures. For you have that in verse 2, don't you? That it was promised of old that it was promised in the prophets. The Bible tells us that the prophets then could foresee the good news of what? Of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The gospel is good news. Uh, the, the book of First, Second Peter tells us a little bit more about the gospel. And we'll find that in some of Peter's writings there that he says that this gospel which is preached unto you by the Holy Ghost anointing those that were sent from God, as the Apostle Paul and the Apostles were anointed by the Holy Spirit, he says that it was desired to be looked into by the prophets of old. That the prophets of old searched 
as to what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did testify beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And he also says that it's the things that even the angels desire to look into. So the prophets spoke of it, the apostles preached it, and the angels would then decide to see and to try to understand it. So this is the gospel we're talking about. That was promised before or afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Notice it says that the Scriptures are holy. They are the Holy Scriptures. They're given by inspiration of God. This gospel in verse 3 concerns his Son. It's concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. If you were to look at all of these titles, it's concerning his Son. This is God's only begotten Son. It's concerning Jesus, who, uh, whose name means Savior. Christ, the anointed or promised one. Our Lord, this Son of God, Jesus our Savior, Christ the anointed, became whom? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we must confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some people recognize Him as Savior, uh, Jesus. Some people look upon Him as Christ. But do we believe on Him as Lord? He's the Lord. He's the Lord of our lives. And if He's the Lord of our lives, that means He has the first place. He not only has come to save us and has the power to save and was the promised Savior, but that means that we must give Him first place. You know, I believe there are many people that have accepted Jesus as Savior that have not placed Him as Lord of their lives. But the Bible teaches that He must be the Lord in our lives. So it says, concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now then, in verse 3, you'll have the humanity of Christ. In verse 4, you'll have the divine character of Christ. The human character in verse 3. And in verse 4, you'll have the divine character. So this gospel concerns Jesus, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Look at that. In other words, he was born of a woman. The Bible says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So you have him made of the seed of David. We know that Christ was of the seed of David according to the flesh. The Bible declares him to be David's greater son and of the house and lineage of David, we read in the birth of Christ. But that's according to the flesh. And he was made this. But then in verse 4 it says he's declared to be the Son of God. Now, he, he's not made to be the Son of God, is he? He's already the Son of God. He was made of the seed of David. The Word was made flesh or became flesh and dwelt among us. But the Word that became flesh was indeed the Son of God, was with God in the beginning. You see? So he was declared to be the Son of God. By a threefold testimony in verse 4, if you'll look at it, it says, the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. In other words, three things here testify to the fact that Christ is the Son of God. First of all, He had power. The Bible says that He, uh, all authority, all power is given unto me, Jesus said, in heaven and in earth. The Bible says to, uh, concerning those that believed on Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. So, and we know the power of Christ was manifested in His public ministry, wasn't it? And we find that 
This testifies to the fact that he was the Son of God. And then according to the Spirit of holiness, he was the sinless one. He was holy. Never was there another one that was sinless. This is a testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ is uh, the Son of God. This is how he's declared to be, by the power and by his holiness, by his sinlessness. The Bible says that he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. It says, in him is no sin. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Christ was holy. Christ was sinless. Jesus himself said, which of you convinceth me of sin, convicts me of sin? We find that all the way through, even from the beginning, from his birth, that holy child, Jesus, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So he was holy in his birth. He was holy in his life, sinless in his life. He was holy and sinless in his death, except for the fact he became our substitute and took upon him who was sinless. He took upon him our sins. And he bore the penalty and judgment and wrath and disgrace of our sins upon himself. And he became our substitute. The doctrine and teaching of substitution. The innocent lamb dying for the guilty sinner. That's what Jesus was. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He took your place and mine. As a substitute, that means he died in the place of someone else, on behalf of someone else. That was you and I. He took our place. Our death was there. And when we accept him, we reckon that we should have died there because we were sinners. And by accepting him, we do not have to die there nor anywhere else spiritually. For we're passed from death unto life. And so through Christ's substitutionary work, we have salvation. He was the Holy One. Look, and also is declared to be the Son of God with power. Verse 4, watch your scripture, please. By the resurrection from the dead. This was the final testimony and declaration and proof that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He re was resurrected from the dead. So you have a threefold proof of Christ being the Son of God. We could go on and on. There's no end of the preaching in any one of these verses. But look at the next verse. We'll try to progress and give you something of each one. It says in verse 5, By whom we have received uh, grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. Notice, the apostleship being sent, as the apostle Paul was a sent one, was sent to all nations and was... The, the gospel is meant for all nations. And the ministry of the gospel is meant for all nations. And we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith, that, that the faith of Christ is to be preached to all nations, the truth of the gospel, and is to be received. If it could be preached to all nations, those that hear it preached could receive it and are responsible to receive it. Among all nations for his name. This shows us the responsibility of Christians. This shows us the responsibility especially of the church. This shows us the responsibility of you and I as children of God and members of the church. That we have received grace and apostleship, not in the same sense that the apostle Paul was one sent and one especially chosen to be an apostle to the Gentiles, but that as a church we are to carry out the Great Commission ourselves. Obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. And verse 6, among whom ye also 
among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. We're among those called ones. We're not only called to be Christ, but we're called to serve Christ, aren't we? Now I want you to look. It says in verse 7, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called saints, or called to be saints. Notice the word to be is in italics. That means it was not in the original scripture. In the King James Version, this is always pointed out, so that you'll know what is real scripture and what is not. Sometimes the words that are put in in italics by the translators help you to understand it. Sometimes they add nothing to it. Sometimes they may even hinder it, depending upon the opinion. But they are not a part of the Scripture, so you don't have to worry about it. If it helps to understand, well and good. It'd be just like a preacher trying to expound it to you. If it hinders your understanding, well, then it's no good. If it does neither, well, then leave it be. But notice, it says that we're called to be saints. We are saints, we're called saints, and we're called to be saints. All is true. When you're called to be a, be a Christian, you're called to be a saint, because when you become a child of God, you become a saint. But we're called saints, for that is our name as well. You know, some people have the idea that saints are those some reverend people or pious ones that have gone on in death before us and are in heaven in glory, and that we have glorified saints, but there's not any saints upon this earth. But saints are not any special ones. We're all saints of God, children of God. That's a title just the same as we're a child of God, just the same as we're a Christian, just the same as we're sons of God. And so that is our title. We're called to be saints. And notice what he says in verse 7. Grace to you and peace. Not only the two things that we see that we have, but who it comes from. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this. Grace and peace. It's never peace and then grace. You couldn't have peace with God without the grace of God, could you? But you can have, if you have the grace of God, God's unmerited favor and love extended to unworthy sinners, and by grace are you saved through faith, then being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul almost always uses these words. Sometimes he adds one word and says grace, mercy, and peace, which is still in the proper order. But he always uses grace and peace and sometimes adds the word mercy. And so we find here that he says grace and peace, and it comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has made peace with God for us. And God has given us His grace, and so having made peace by the blood of His cross, Colossians 1.20, we have the peace that He's made with God. You see, we were not at peace with God before Jesus made peace by His blood that He shed on the cross. We were at enmity with God. And therefore, uh, Paul says, grace and peace. And it's from God our Father, and it's from and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the two. Now then, let's notice Paul's prayer here and some more things in verses 8 and 9. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Notice it's through Christ that is the medium that he can thank God for or that he can even pray unto God. It's through Christ that we thank. It's through Christ that we pray. For First, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. And he says that your faith is spoken of 
throughout the whole world. Now then, it didn't mean that their individual salvation, their faith for salvation, though they had to have that to have any faith at all, for that's the way you're saved. But that their faith, in other words, that their stand for the truth or for the doctrine, for their standing in the faith. And really that's what is meant here. You know, some people think that their personal faith for their salvation is what is referred to. No, not so. Even though they had to be personally saved by grace through faith, and that would be a testimony, but the faith of this church of Rome, the faith of these people all together, what they stood for as far as truth and as far as teaching is concerned, doctrine was spoken of throughout the whole world. In other words, people would look at that church in Rome and say, this is a church that stands for the Word of God, for the faith of Christ. They were not looking at each individual's faith for salvation. They were looking at where they stood doctrinally. I believe that there can come a time, and I trust that someday it will be true in this church, and I trust that among a few it is already true, that that the faith of these of the children of God and the members of this church will be spoken of. In other words, that people will know where you stand as far as the Word of God is concerned. And they come along with some of this Tommy Roth that you hear today, some of the so-called modern gospel or new gospel. We sing the song, the old story of Christ. It will be the old, old story, don't we, that I have heard so long and loved so long. And there is no gospel for us to preach except the gospel that Paul preached. And that is the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, how He was buried and rose again the third day. Someone might say, well, I would get tired of hearing that every uh, Sunday and every time the preacher got up to preach. There are many ways to present that gospel, and that gospel is to be the central theme, though it may be presented in many different ways. We can go back and see how Abraham teaches us and preaches to us the gospel. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Paul tells us in the fourth chapter of this same book that when we believe that Jesus was delivered for our offenses and raised for our justification, the last verse of the fourth chapter, then we also have the faith of Abraham and it's counted to righteousness for us. So it can be presented in many different ways. But the main theme is still always the old story and the old gospel of Jesus Christ. And you, we should never lose sight of that. And that should be uh, that we would stand upon, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So when someone comes along to you, do you know where you stand as a Christian? You know where you stand as far as the fundamentals of the faith are concerned? If they come along and say, well, what do you believe about being saved by grace through faith? Do you believe it's completely by grace through faith? If you've studied your Bible, you can say, most assuredly, I do. It's by the grace of God, and it's by faith in Christ's finished, substitutionary, sacrificial, atoning work on the cross. They say, well, what about good works? You'll say, well, we are ordained unto good works, which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. But you're not saved by them. You're to live that way because you are a child of God. This is the fruit of the matter, not the root of the matter. The root of the matter is that you're saved by grace through faith. You ought to know where you stand about salvation. We ought to know where we stand about our faith in the, in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, in His sinless life, 
in his atoning sacrifice, in his literal bodily resurrection from the grave, in his appearance to the disciples as proof that he was risen again indeed, and after forty days ascended to the right hand of God, and we ought to know that we believe that he now ever lives, as the Bible declares to be so, to make intercession for all that come unto God by him. We ought to know where we stand. And I believe that if we'll become grounded in these things, that our faith will be spoken of. Someone will come along and say, well, do you believe that? And you don't have to say, well, I'm not sure, you know. A lot of times people are not sure what they believe. And you know why? They are either not studied in the Word and read in the Word, or they do not have enough conviction, they're not taught enough in the Word. And that's why we need to be taught. That's why people need to attend the house of God and, and be fed upon the Word of God so we'll know what we believe and wherein we stand. And you know, I put away a long time ago this business of trying to go here and there and get mixed up by every wind of doctrine that comes along. I just put that completely out of my mind. You say, well, you're narrow-minded. No, I'm just as narrow-minded as the Bible is narrow-minded, and I'm just as broad-minded as the Bible is broad-minded. I believe that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, that the gospel is to be preached everywhere to everyone, that they have the opportunity of salvation, but I believe that there's none other way than through Jesus Christ. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So that's the faith we need to be grounded in. Let's get grounded in it. And then it says, Paul going on to say in verse 9, For God is my witness, now look, with uh, whom I serve, with my spirit. Uh, Paul served God, and he served him in a spiritual way. He served not only spiritual, but it, it could be uh, spoken of as in my spirit. Not only with my spirit, but in my spirit. In fact, if you have a marginal reference, it will show you that it's in my spirit. Sometimes the little words, within, the prepositions, are all have a, have a special meaning in the original language. It doesn't mean you're changing anything. It means you're emphasizing that which the Bible really emphasizes. Not changing anything at all. But they're all uh, translated... The prepositions many times are tra translated with or in. So we find here, he says, with my spirit or in my spirit, in the gospel of his Son. Notice, it's, it's the gospel of his Son here that's spoken of. That without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul says, God will witness to this fact that I serve him, that I serve him in a spiritual way, that I serve him concerning the gospel of his Son and in the gospel of his Son, and that... I make mention of you always in my prayers. Making request, verse 10, If by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the, <clears throat> by the will of God to come unto you. Paul had a purpose. His purpose was to go to Rome. And that God would prosper his way. And God worked it out to where Paul did go. But what I want us to see, most of all, is that his desire was to go. Now, let's look at verse 12. He says, that is, that I may be comforted. Wait a minute, we didn't read verse 11. Let's read verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end you may be established. Paul wanted to go there, and Paul wanted to go in order that he might establish them in spiritual things, and that he might impart unto them some spiritual gift. Now, he, he's simply saying, 
In chapter 15, verse 29, he says, I'm sure that when I come, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of the gospel of Christ. If he came in the fullness of the blessings of the gospel of Christ, this would be establishing them and would be imparting to them the spiritual uh, gift that he desired. In other words, he wanted to bless them or give them something spiritually when he came. That's what he had in mind. And he says in verse 12, that is, that I may be comforted. He goes on to explain further the desire for a mutual faith with them and the comfort of being with them. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. That he might be not only able to establish them, but that he would be comforted together with them. You see the comfort in spiritual fellowship and in the mutual faith? What do we mean by mutual faith? Have you ever thought about it? We have some of the brethren that are strong in faith. Others maybe not so strong. Some that are maybe weak in the faith. But you put all that mutual faith together and each one, it equalizes and it strengthens. So it's just like if one of us were to go out here and try to lift a great weight, we might not could do it. If two of us went out there to do it, we might not could do it. But if all of us went out there to lift the same weight, it would equalize our, our lifting power and it would give us strength together. And it's a mutual thing. It would be done. And that's the mutual faith. Our faith is weak or it's strong or it's mediocre. But if we have it together, we have faith that, that will will uh, stand. And that's why we need one another. And the Bible tells us that those that are strong in faith to help those that are weak in faith. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye. But not to doubtful disputations. <clears throat> Don't receive someone that's weak in the faith just if he just wants to dispute with you and argue with you from the standpoint of his weakness. Receive him in order that you might strengthen him. But don't let him come in and disturb the church just because he doesn't have any faith or his faith is weak. But let him come in that you may strengthen his faith and that we may strengthen one another's faith. That mutual faith. Now he says, verse 13, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, look at verse 13, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have uh, some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. In other words, Paul wanted to come to them. He wanted to have some fruit among them. He had purpose to do so, but sometimes he had been hindered or he was led otherwise. We know that it, sometimes Paul would desire to go and preach in a certain place, but the Bible says that Satan hindered. He would run across some hindrances or that he was not permitted to do so. And then all of a sudden he would see that God would open another door for him. When Paul couldn't preach at one place, the Bible says that he saw in the night in a vision a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And after he had seen that vision, he knew that God was purposing for him to go over and help these of Macedonia. So God worked it out and guided and directed. And you know, even though sometimes Satan does hinder, it doesn't mean that God's purpose is, is stopped by that. It may be that God is controlling Satan's hindrance to, the, to, the, to God's glory and to your good and to mine. And he can do that. You see, God has everything under control. Someone says, you mean he's got the devil under control? He's just right under his thumb. He's got everything under control. 
We look at this world, and it's rocking and reeling, and it's steeped in sin today, isn't it? It's wicked. And this nation of ours, which was once uh, looked upon as a godly nation, and our pilgrim fathers came over here so that they could have freedom of worship and to worship God. What is it now? Instead of heathen Africa, it's heathen America. You see the difference? We're steeped in sin. The reason being we've left God out, turned away from God in our laws and in many things in the nation, in our practices, in our politics, in our religion. There's too many false cults and uh, there's too much atheism and cults around about us that do not believe in God and yet they make a profession of some kind of a faith but not faith in the God and Father. The Bible says the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only one we have anything to do with. You say, well, preacher, what about the gods of, of the heathen? What about the go- uh, gods of the, the Buddhist god? What about the, the Mohammedans? What about all of these others? Well, the Bible teaches that there is none but one. There is one God, there is one Lord, there is one faith, and there is one baptism. The Bible tells us that God is the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The Bible teaches us the one that we have to trust in in order to be saved. We're going to have to hurry on. Let me give you this. Paul was not, though he did not make it when he maybe intended to, and though Satan's hindrances may have come along, or they, though he may have been spiritually led otherwise, Still, his purpose was plain and clear. I purpose to come unto you. And he wanted to impart some spiritual fruit and have some fruit among them as among other Gentiles. But verse 14, he says, I'm debtor. He shows his uh, spiritual indebtedness. To whom? He says, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. Paul says, I'm a debtor to the heathen. Both to the wise and to the unwise. Says doesn't make any difference. Paul's indebtedness was not to any particular race or creed or color. He says, I'm a debtor, not to any of high standing or low standing. Greeks or to the barbarians. I'm I'm a debtor to all. He said he was a debtor to all men. He preached the gospel first to the Jews, and when they discounted it and would not have it, he says, Lo, I turn to the Gentiles. But he says, I'm a debtor. Do we see ourselves as a church today as debtors? Do we have a have an indebtedness to the lost, regardless of who they may be, or of what nation or race that they may be? We should be like Paul and say, I am debtor. You know, I believe as Christians we're not only debtors to the to the lost world and to the lost round about us, but we're debtors we're debtors to Christ who paid for our salvation. We are debtors to the church who brought about a message and a ministry that affected our lives, however great or however small. Some people say, well, the church uh, doesn't mean that much to me. Well, it has had some ministry in your life or you wouldn't be present tonight. So, you see, it does have some influence. It is worth our indebtedness. And we may even be indebted to certain uh, brothers in the church that have been uh, instrumental in helping us. But nevertheless, we're debtors one to another, aren't we? The Bible says, owe no man anything save love one another. This is a debt that we owe. 
We're to not owe others as far as uh, money is concerned, as far as other things are concerned, but we are to owe love. Owe no man anything but love one another. So we find that the Apostle Paul here is speaking of being a debtor. Verses 15 and 16. He says in verse 15, So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Because he felt an indebtedness, he says, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. He was ready where he was. He was ready to preach to all those that he had the opportunity to preach to before he would go to Rome. But he also says, I'm ready to do it when I get over there. And he says, for this reason, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. We've already explained what the gospel of Christ is. It's the gospel of God, verse 1, he's the author of it. It's the gospel of his son, verse 9, Christ is the central theme of it. It's the gospel that is to be preached in verse 15. It's a preached gospel. And it's the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it's the gospel that has with it power. And it's the simple statement of fact that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first few verses, that it's concerning the death and burial and resurrection of Christ and what it means to us. What is that power of God unto salvation? That good news. Paul says it's according to the Scriptures. He says it's that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Do not all the Scriptures testify that Christ died for our sins? Even the Old Testament. For we found in verse 2 that He promised the four by His holy prophets in the Holy Scriptures, this gospel. And that Christ's death was prophesied by not only types and shadows, but by Isaiah in very plain terms. He says, He was wounded for our transgressions, He was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on Him, you know what the word means there? Made to meet on Him, placed upon Christ's head, He hath laid on Him. The iniquity of us all. So he made our sins to meet upon Christ or to bear upon Christ. And thus doing, he made him the substitute for sinners. And therefore, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's concerning the death of Christ, the burial of Christ. And Paul says, (coughs) and that Christ rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. It's concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's not be ashamed to preach and declare this good news for sinners today. I don't believe we'll have time to go further, so we'll pick up, we'll probably pick up and give you verse 17, the Lord willing, next uh, Sunday evening, if you'll bear with me on that. I'd like to finish this chapter and give you more of it. So, we know that we want to stand for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and be a debtor both to the Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and unwise, as the Apostle Paul was. Let us stand together for a word of prayer.